welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 93. 93 episodes in, I'm... I'm Gosh, I'm happy about that. You know, I, I sometimes remember back to when I first started this show and I wondered, you know, how many episodes is this going to go for? Are people going to be interested in it? Are people going to listen to it? Will I hit 50? Will I hit 100? I got to tell you guys, this is exceeding expectations. I'm very happy about it. I'm very happy that we have a following in the way that we do. Uh, I mean, the numbers are pretty solid, but it's not really only about the numbers. It's also about getting ideas out, getting information out, and building up Counterpunch, because I think Counterpunch really is critical for us uh, on the left in the alternative media uh, despite you know all of the sniping and all of the attacks and all of the this and the that and all the things that people say about every single left uh, media outlet because they don't follow the perfect political line because they're I don't like this guy I don't like that woman I don't like whatever that's what the left is all about but counterpunch in fact stands in many ways above it in my opinion counterpunch is our outpost in the wilderness it's the place Place that we can go to fight out the war of ideas, to really examine the world around us, and to examine what I think is undeniably one of the most insane, upside down, topsy turvy political moments that we've had at least in the United States, in generations, perhaps. So uh, if you agree about the importance of Counterpunch, please do consider becoming a subscriber to the print magazine. I love getting emails when people tell me that they did it because I harangued them endlessly for two years or more uh, to do it. It makes me feel good because the magazine is a great magazine and it's a great way to keep Counterpunch going. So please do consider that. Of course, also spreading the word about this show, greatly appreciated iTunes. Google Play, Stitcher, uh, social media, email chains, uh, you know, whatever. Bumper stickers, if you guys want to make some up. Uh, whatever it takes. I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate all of you guys, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Now, that being said, I want to welcome back a returning guest, dare I say friend of the show, dare I say iconoclast, Paul Street. Paul Street is um, Paul. <laughs> Paul Street is a uh, regular contributor to Counterpunch. He is the author of numerous books, including uh, multiple books that told the truth about Barack Obama back when everyone was smoking hope. Uh, Paul Street, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, iconoclastic uh, as ever. <laughs> <laughs> you are you are the 17th century Netherlandish equivalent of what we need today. Um, okay, Paul, you had an article published in Counterpunch over the weekend. This was the August 4th uh, edition, the weekend edition, entitled Unity with the Right, a Deplorable Idea. Now... I think that this is a critical issue to discuss. Obviously, uh, you know, you do because you wrote a piece on it. So we'll go in depth on on some of these ideas here in a second. But maybe uh, for people who did not get a chance to see that piece, maybe give us an overview of what it is that you're arguing in the article and what uh, motivated you to write it. Well, let's start with the word deplorables. Uh, I think it was last September that uh, Hillary Clinton deplorable Hillary Clinton was talking to an elite fundraiser and I believe it was in New York City and she had this comment that uh, I denounced at the time and I think a lot of us on the left denounced at the time and in fact I still think it was politically unwise it, it, it gave uh, Donald Trump the horrific 
clockwork orangutan, the orange-tinted beast, you know, a, a wonderful sort of slogan to campaign on. So it was a political mistake. But what she said was, what was it that uh, half of Trump's supporters were a were what she called a basket of deplorables? And she said, you know, racist, sexist, uh, Islamophobic, uh, what have you, all those sort of nasty white nationalist reactionary kinds of things. And, um, you know, this um, sparked a sort of a lot of horror and a lot of outrage, and Trump was able to use it in a particular kind of way. And I, um, I sort of was upset at that term when she used it the first time, because I think I was still somewhat bought into one of the great myths about Trump's base, which was that he allegedly had this vast army of appropriately alienated and uh, a, a properly angry white working class voters b behind him. Emphasis on working class, the people that you so famously labeled as Trumpin proletarians, right? Oh my um, God, so, thank you, Paul. And <laughs> jokingly referred to as the Trumpin proletarians. And, you know, after the election, and as we've gone through the exit poll data, and there have been various academic studies, and nobody has written about this more effectively and comprehensively than fellow counterpuncher Lehigh um, uh, University political scientist Anthony DiMaggio, you know, we found out that, um, that, that, um, that, that Trump's base was pretty much the standard white middle class and relatively affluent, uh, petty bourgeois, uh, 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 elite that, uh, well, I don't know if elite is the phrase, but cohort that is sort of the standard basis of far right wing and white nationalist, uh, uh, uh political parties, uh, forever through, throughout the West. I mean, it's, it, it's uh, people making between 75,000 uh, and a hundred thousand a year, um, uh, accounted for a disproportionate part of Trump's voters. There were lots of voters that were making uh, more than 100,000 a year, and on and on and on. This, 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 this whole notion of this working class base uh, just does, does not show up in the data, in the, in the exit polling data, in the studies of who voted for Trump. A and B, the reason they voted really didn't have anything to do with this, uh, uh, you know, uh, populism, this blue collar populism. There wasn't all these people there. There really weren't all these people that were sucked into. Trump's promise to bring back manufacturing, you know, tr they weren't sucked in by Trump's great uh, uh, manipulation of, of populism and his sort of pretense of being a working class hero. I mean, what could possibly be more ridiculous than the absurd uh, real estate magnate billionaire Donald Trump uh, uh, masquerading as a working class populist? But really, they weren't sucked in by that. Really, what happened was the Democrats, who are dismal and terrible and dollar-drenched, they're an inauthentic opposition party. They're a neoliberal party. They abandoned the working class a long, long time ago, going back to the Carter years, uh, certainly up through the Clinton years. What they do is they um, they demoralize and demobilize uh, the, the Democratic Party's base. And they, 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 what happened is that they sort of pathologically sat those people down. Yet again, even more so than usual uh, in the 2016 campaign run by Hillary Clinton, which is, which is going to go down in the history books as one of the most horrifically awful uh, right-wing Democratic campaigns of all time. So the Trump people didn't really, didn't really um, uh, suck those people up. They didn't really delude the blue-collar voters. And, and the motivating factor, it turns out, in a lot of academic studies that have come out, for these voters, 
uh, was sort of precisely kind of in in a way kind of what Hillary said it was white identity, sexism, uh, 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 nativism, homophobia, Islamophobia and all those kinds of things. That's really kind of what shows up. That was a much bigger deal behind their voting, their kind of uh, uh, attachment to the reactionary social issues that Trump so uh, uh, clumsily and yet somehow effectively uh, exploited uh, yeah. this time around. So that's uh, that's what really happened this time. And if the Democrats had done anything remotely close to their supposed progressive job of railing working class voters, we wouldn't even be talking about this. Trump wouldn't have won. That's exactly right. And um, not to you know not to you know interject myself here with a little marketing and public relations, but my piece in the print edition of Counterpunch that I wrote in December, well before Trump was even inaugurated, Donald right. Trump and the Triumph of White Identity Politics, which Anthony DiMaggio uh, also referenced in his great article as well. I mean, that's exactly what I found, and I was combing through the actual data, the stuff that Gallup was, was publishing, the stuff that the Urban Institute published, and a number of other places, and I mean, the data was clear, the data was obvious, that Donald Trump had had no real working class movement. It doesn't exist. That actually Trumpism, to the extent that such a word can even be used, is is in effect a white affluent movement that is socially and culturally driven with economics sort of underlying that, not because the people uh, who were supporting Trump were by and large working class, but because they were they were well-to-do, privileged, who had lost a little bit of social or economic standing since the 2008 crisis. And of course, that brought out the racist sentiment that they pinned it on Obama, that they pinned right. it on liberals and political correctness and all of these other sort of uh, you know, buzzwords and signals that they use to kind of vent their frustrations. That's what Trump really capitalized on. And, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right to point out that as, as odious of a, uh, you know, a despicable person as Hillary Clinton truly is, she was in, in, in essence correct about at least the social forces that were being unleashed by what Trump was doing. So that raises the second question then, so what? So why is it important to note that uh, Trump's movement is a movement of white, affluent, uh, culturally and socially driven reactionaries? Why is that important? Why are you leading off with that, Paul? Well, now, and just on Hillary for a second, I think I say in the article that this is a case of a, uh, of a crooked corporatist clock. <laughs> you know, actually telling tw time accurately at least once every 12 hours. So, yeah, she got something. She got something right. Um, you know, it matters because th there's this argument that has sort of been around on the left. I saw it again and again with the Tea Party people, too. And there's always been this kind of sense among the liberal left. Uh, and it's even sort of creeped its way into the discourse of our leading intellectual in many ways, which is, which is Noam Chomsky. Um, you know, there's this kind of sense that um, that Trump has stolen the left's base or the Democratic base or progressives base. Right. And so we need to go back and get them and find common ground with them. Right. You know, and as as um, as nasty as I was from the left and largely on the foreign policy issue towards Bernie Sanders. Right. I say in this essay, and I think the exit polling data bears this out, that Sanders was progressive enough 
and he would have mobilized enough of actual working class and, and lower class voters for the Democrats to, if he had been the nominee for the Democrats to have prevailed. And so there's this kind of myth out there that's, that Trump went and got the voters that, um, that, 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 um, that Bernie Sanders would have gotten, right? That he sort of stole the, the Democrats or the left or whatever you want to call it, the progressives, working class and lower class base. And that's just not true at all. It's not those people at all. These are the very people that even if the Democrats had run Sanders, who was a single payer advocate, who was a progressive taxation advocate, who was a, um, uh, who was a green jobs, public works advocate, right? I mean, a lot of problems with that because he was so goddamn attached to the to the military budget, but he advocated these things. I guarantee you, this Trump base, which is the petty bourgeois base in large measure of fascism historically, certainly of white nationalism, uh, if, if, if Sanders had won, uh, um, he, he, he would have won not by getting people that Trump stole from the base, from the Democratic base. He, he would have won by mobilizing uh, millions of people in such a way that they would have swamped these uh, petty bourgeois white nationalist reactionary voters. And if Sanders had won, I guarantee you, Trump's base, uh, if Sanders had been the candidate and, and if Sanders had then gone on to win, I guarantee you, that the, the Trump base, this petty bourgeois white nationalist base that hates unions, that hates socialism, that hates anything that smacks of collectivism, that hates anything that smacks of civil rights, that hates anything that smacks of gender or racial justice and equality, they would be in the streets. They would be up in arms. They would be dangerous. They, they, some of them would actually be armed. They would be being egged on by Alex Jones and Breitbart and Fox News and, and the talk radio right-wing lunatics, they would be being egged on to do everything they could to overthrow the supposedly uh, totalitarian Marxist-Leninist uh, uh, arch-communist government headed by Bernie Sanders in Washington, D.C. So, I mean, these are, they're, they're not our people at all. We wouldn't have gotten them by, 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 by going out and getting them. Sanders would have probably uh one and then had to and then had to face some really serious questions of cracking down on these people they would be very dangerous absolutely and and one of the things that needs to be uh said about this idea of a left right you know bridge building left right alliances or what have you i mean what exactly are we really talking about what element of the right Obviously, there's two ways of looking at it. One is being popularized by some, you know, ridiculous bloggers and others that uh, that the left really needs to be collaborating with, quote unquote, the uh, the anti-establishment right, the alt right, as it were. Now, what exactly does that mean? We're talking about literal fascists. We're talking about people who advocate ideas such as immigration equals white genocide. We're talking about some of the worst, most reprehensible degenerates that exist in the political landscape. <laughs> On top of that, they're very small in number. They have created a brand for themselves. They have uh, effectively utilized media, created their own, you know, social media blogosphere and YouTube, you know, uh, uh, networks and so forth. But in reality, in terms of numbers, they're very, very small. So why is anybody advocating this absolute garbage? Well, you know, and I, what is this phrase uh, anti-establishment? What is this anti-establishment? Exactly. Right. <laughs> what does that I mean, even what, mean? what are, are this a right wing that's going to go after the uh, the uh, 
the Wall Street and Council on Foreign Relations uh, financial corporate and imperialist establishment and join the left in, 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 in undertaking a proletarian revolution or something like that. I mean, this, this so-called anti-establishment left uh, is, 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 excuse me, anti-establishment right. When you ask them who their first enemies are, they list liberal and left uh, organizations and people and sources. They went to smash uh, 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 anyone who's for civil rights or or, or anti-imperialists or and, 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 and civil rights people, they want to destroy. Them. I mean, and some of them are very explicit about it and and, and cross over into flat-out fascist hatred of, of us, right? So that's one. Second of all, get down with them, uh, unite with them, join with them. Uh, first of all, there's this moral question of 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 of, of why on earth. Would anyone on the left want to associate with some of the worst human beings on on, 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 on on planet Earth? You know, when you lie down with dogs, you're going to get fleas, right? If you lie down with white nationalists, you're going to get white nationalist fleas. And, and, and the only argument I could possibly see for it would, would, would be that we're just so damn desperate, yeah, right? Exactly. I don't know how you get so desperate that you need to hang out with fascists, but we're so desperate. And we're not. We're, we're not really well. We're desperate, but our desperate, our desperation isn't about our failure to connect with them. Our desperation is about the left not doing its job of organizing the unorganized and mobilizing the demobilized, you know, and building the grassroots uh, uh, progressive revolutionary working people's multiracial power that would, would dwarf these people. We wouldn't even be talking about these people if there was if there was any kind of functioning and serious left that was just doing its job. Indeed. I mean, that's exactly There's right. millions of people out there who, who some of them are apolitical, like you said, and some of them were formerly political and are just so disgusted yeah. the whole process that, or, or, or just too busy. You know, and uh, there's any number of reasons. Well, and, and when I say apolitical, I don't mean they yeah. have no politics. I mean they're not engaged. They can't be engaged. They're not involved in any day-to-day -day way or even in a casual way because they're too busy working two jobs to support their family. Yeah. They're too busy. You know, they, 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 don't want to in, they don't want to watch any more Trump, and they don't want to hear any more about Russia. They don't want to hear all this garbage. They want real politics, real fundamental pragmatic politics that are solutions oriented and what pisses me off more than anything right. and i'm gonna tell you the truth this this what this what pisses me off more than anything about every noodle head who talks about collaboration with the right they don't even know what people on the left are actually doing right now i've seen people talking about collaborating with the right they don't know what uh, cooperation jackson and kali akuno and, and the malcolm x grassroots movement is doing in jackson mississippi they don't talk about that they don't talk about independent building and and, and capacity building and people's powers assemblies going on in maryland and going on in new york and and uh you know radical political activists who are running for mayor in florida and radical activists who are seizing city councils in northern california and the movement for you know i could i could literally rattle off a hundred more things that are actually going on that deserve in, in other words there's no shortage of decent uh progressive and left outlets for for for, for people's energy exactly and 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 yeah. the point is that what we don't have is something that's uniting all of these different initiatives and that's something that needs to be built and that takes a lot of hard work and a lot of energy and a lot of patience and a lot of alliances and bridge building and what 
whatever. All of these fascists on the far right, they don't care about any of that stuff. Not only do they not care about it, they want to actively destroy it because they see all of those things as manifestations of what they call cultural Marxism and white genocide and uh, uh, miscegenation and all of these other horrific fascistic ideas that they popularize and then we have these idiots on the left telling us those are the people we should be collaborating with. My question to you is who could possibly make that argument and why? Well, I, I think we, you know, it's this, it's this, this, uh, this belief that there's this the desperation. I think there are mistaken beliefs about who the right is. There are mistaken beliefs about who Trump's, uh, who Trump's voters are. Uh, but it all kind of smacks of something else going on, doesn't it? Sort of behind the scenes, it kind of makes you wonder uh, uh, who would be pushing this narrative. Oh well, that now, in, you know, in. in, in, in <laughs> You know, in in the first place, right? Now you're opening the uh, proverbial Pandora's box there, Mr. Street, uh, in typical iconoclastic fashion. So uh, <laughs> let's, yeah, I mean, absolutely. When I see people allegedly on the left whose talking points mirror people on the far right, it certainly makes me wonder. It makes me wonder a lot of different things. But just at a basic level, it makes me wonder about why anybody should even listen to such garbage. Why would anybody even take this seriously? Is it because they're so bereft of original ideas, of actual organizing experience, of actually uh, having some semblance of understanding of what it takes to build a movement? I think. Well, that- I mean, I think I think that's right to a significant extent. I mean, we are a long, long, long way. From- from the time in American history, like in the 1930s, where, you know, like when the cops would show up on the south or the west side of Chicago to to do the bidding of a landlord and, you know, evict a family and the people in the neighborhood would say, quick, run and get the reds. And I mean, you know, the people, there, there actually used to be a sort of steady institutional uh, 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 identifiable left presence in American life. I mean, we're not supposed to say that about the Communist Party. You know, and some of the other parties and organizations and, of course, the labor movement and, and institutions that you exist you, that used to exist in this country. And we really are kind of bereft of that kind of sense. But, right. But, but, but don't you, you know, think I mean, these kind of ephemeral things that come and go? I mean, it's, you know, people don't quite know what they are. There was Occupy and then Occupy disappeared. And, you know, I mean, there was Black Lives Matter and no one really knows what it is. Is it a hashtag? Is, a, is it an actual movement? Is it funded by the Ford Foundation? And we, we have all these kind of sort of fake kinds of things. Now we have Indivisible has showed up in all these various different kinds of towns. And there have been some town hall mobilizations that I think were a kind of an unheralded factor in the defeat of the attempt to kick 22 million people off of, uh, of health care and stuff and stuff like that. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's very tricky. And people have showed up at Democratic Congress people's town halls this summer and literally yelled at them and said, why do you talk about Russia all the time? 24-7 constantly. There's so many, you know, it's like the, the Al Pacino line in Dog Day Afternoon, we're dying out here, right? We've got opiate addiction. We have half the population with no assets. We've got half the population poor or near poor. We've got healthcare premiums going through the roof. And we just have this constant sort of official discussion uh, targeted completely, uh, or, or, or hooked completely off of Russia. I don't know if that's an answer to your question or not. No, I think I, that, I think that, 
Yeah. I think that there's a lot to be said for that, and I think that also it, this comes from a lack of political maturity from many people on the left, and uh, I think it comes from a lack of leadership and a lack of vision and a lack of organization. You know, you know, my, 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 my nomination for the single most underestimated fact in the rightward drift of American political life over the last four decades is the, is the decline of union density in this country from like 45%, right? in the mid-1950s to, what is it, 11% now? Less than 6% in, in, in the private sector? Not to say that I'm a great fan of American model trade unionism after World War II, but that's really just extraordinary. Absolutely. You know? I, yeah. and, and, and unions actually are one of the few institutions that really can t- mobilize millions into the streets overnight and, and make a movement happen, literally manufacture a movement if need be. But of course they don't and they won't because they are now essentially adjuncts of the Democratic Party, uh, which we saw, I think, uh, in spades in the 2016 election where... Well, they, they kind of did that for about a month or so in Madison, uh, in Madison Wisconsin. Right, but... but, <laughs> in but March of 2011, and then but systematically the dismantled it and channeled it all into a doomed uh, attempt to run Tommy Barrett to get his ass kicked for a second time by Scott well, that's a, And that's exactly the point, Paul. That's that's precisely yeah, right. how they do it. When I say an adjunct of the Democratic Party, because they marry their fortunes to Democrats rather than building independent political power and independent political capacity. But be that as well, it may. See, but that's a very fascinating episode in precisely that story, because there's this brief moment of semi-courage, right? Because they're, 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 they're in Wisconsin, they're ready to give away the farm on wages and benefits and salaries and all kinds of stuff. But no, Scott Walker, funded by the Koch brothers, wants to go after everything. And he's going to go after collective bargaining rights, which means he's going to go after automatic union dues, which means bye-bye big salaries for AFSCME and other big public sector units. And then all of a sudden they're momentarily militant and then it's out of hand and they don't know what to do with it. And they just shut it all down and go right back to the uh, to the old model. That's exactly right. But – I think that what we're also witnessing now is that we are in, I think, clearly and unmistakably a new political era. I think that the that the politics of previous generations, while certainly instructive, are not necessarily directly applicable to what we're witnessing today. And I think that calls for new kinds of solutions, new kinds of ideas, new kinds of initiatives that come from the left. And there are many people who are doing precisely that kind of stuff, including many sure. former guests on this show who I've brought on to talk about the projects that they're working on. But this now brings me back to the question that we started with, that if you have all of these different things happening and you have this transformation of politics and you have an increasingly radicalized uh, body politic in the United States, radicalized in both directions, I should say, with all of that, for someone to come along and say, now this is the moment to collaborate with the right as the right moves further right, this is insanity. Rather, we need to be asking a fundamental question. Is the left prepared to provide real working people with real solutions to their everyday problems? If the left can't do that, then the left is dead. If the left can do that, it has no business or interest or need for the far right. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree with that 100 percent. I mean, and this is a time where now 51 percent of 18 to 29 year olds, uh, um, you know, so-called millennials, Right. This sort of makes me want to just spend all my time talking to young folks uh, again, like when I was a history professor. More than half of them say that capitalism uh, is no longer the way to go. I mean, basically, they say that capitalism sucks. They have a favorable response to the word 
socialism. And they say, and I, I would say in some ways they know, uh, they tell pollsters that the American dream is dead for them. And not only that, they have a very significant ecological consciousness because they are growing up into a world that's where we can now literally talk in very serious kinds of ways. Some people like to call this catastrophism, but I mean, just look at the science where we are literally looking at the point where capitalism with its end, its growth to endless accumulation and, 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 and profit and growth and, 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 and the chaotic organization of economic life poses a, a sort of like looming specter of an existential threat to human survivability. And so, yeah, if the, if the left can't address that and is going to run around and play footsie, you know, with, with people who, who think that climate change is a, is a hoax, you know, who can actually say stuff like that, you know, and like get into uh, burning fossil fuels in the name of making America great and all that, that's a real statement of moral and, and ethical uh, bankruptcy on top of just the practical nothingness of it, nothingness of it that it goes absolutely nowhere. And one has to really question, in my opinion, really, really question the political acumen of anybody who refers to, uh, uh, you know, the quote-unquote anti-establishment right, considering the fact that the so-called anti-establishment right supports Trump. They see Trump as anti-establishment. They see Trump as a victim of the deep state. They see Trump as being forced into making the decisions that he's making. Uh, all of the leading figures in the alt-right, despite whatever, you know, little petty issues they may have with Trump, they know exactly what Trump represents. They know exactly how good Trump has been for their own organizing. And so to then look at all of that and to say, well, gee, those are the people that we really need to be forging alliances with, I think this discredits it's anybody making that argument well i mean it's just the notion of donald trump as anti-establishment i don't even know where to begin i know taking, taking apart the absurdity he's about to advance a tax tax so-called tax reform package that is an extraordinary gift to the uh not just the one percent but the 0.01 percent uh he's been pushing for a, 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 a he's been advancing a deregulation of energy that's right out of the Koch brothers uh 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 playbook and it is just petro capital elite petro capitalism uh 101 i mean it's it's just it's just sort of unfathomable the only the only thing i'll say on trump is that for whatever reasons uh and some of them might really might be quite sorted i mean i'm not i'm one who actually will pay, pay attention to the Mueller report when it comes out oh sort me of too oh, I'm, very, I'm very curious about that me too but whatever the reasons are and one of the reasons are trump really i mean 2016 because of the, the way this country has been hollowed out by 30 years of ne neoliberalism, 2016 was going to be a quote-unquote, uh, at least stylistically, anti-establishment election, right? And it was really just a question of whether it was going to be Bernie Sanders on the left. And as you know, I don't think he's all that far left. But, you know, sort of the New Deal liberal progressive reformer Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. And, so, and, and I think the ruling class very much preferred Trump. Uh, the DNC and the and the Hillary Clinton machine made damn sure that it was Donald Trump by rigging the game against Sanders. But you know, you got in this wacky dude, the the clockwork orangutan, who actually kind of is from outside the classic cultural imperialist power elite. This guy, I don't know if this guy has ever been to a meeting of the Council on Foreign Relations. I don't know if he's ever read a paper by them. You know, he's just a, he's just very strange that way. And um, 
and 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 for whatever the reasons are, a matter of, of sordid corruption, a matter of stupidity, or just some sort of uh, a, a, a ham-fisted sense that that he likes another authoritarian like Putin and wants to join together with him to crush ISIS or whatever, he kind of um, he kind of wanted to stand down on on the Russia thing for a while. You know, and um, and he cannot be forgiven by the by the real foreign policy establishment for that. Yeah, and it, it is interesting though because I also see the same people who advocate allying with the far right are the same people who have been howling from the very beginning that uh, there's absolutely nothing to the Russia story. It's complete lies. There's no factual basis for any of this, and it's all to be debunked and discredited and ignored. And I always kind of thought to myself, while I partially agree with the with the idea that this is very much overblown and certainly for a political expediency for the Clintons and for Clinton and the Democrats, there's no doubt about that. At the same time, there are some very obvious connections and very clear, uh, let's say, um, dirty dealings that have been going on here. And I think it certainly raises a lot of questions when people start to bring up things like Donald Trump's tax returns and Eric Trump or, uh, you know, Donald Trump Jr. meeting with some Russians and a number of other a number of other issues, which in and of themselves would probably seem relatively innocuous. But taken all together in toto, I think at least certainly raises questions. And so I'm with you. I mean, I'm not really buying the whole narrative, but I'm certainly going to read the report. Yeah, I mean, this one of the things that, that drives me absolutely crazy is, you know, did this narrative that Russia came in and undermined our great democracy? Complete bullshit. Excuse me. What? 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 What, what democracy? Yeah. Is <laughs> that there are any number of of, and you don't even have to be, you know, a, a, a left wing Marxist like like myself to uh, to know that. I mean, there are any number of uh, studies, including ones by uh, very mainstream liberal political scientist Martin Gillens of Princeton and. Benjamin Page of Northwestern that sort of document unimpeachably that uh, the policy is just thoroughly dominated in Washington, D.C. by by the corporate and the financial elite uh, in complete and total disregard for technically irrelevant majority public opinion on anything. I mean, so this is this is absolutely an oligarchy. Well, and on top of that, Uh, long before Russia ever became involved. but, But I just wanted to say that. The, the, the other thing that adds that adds to the sense that there's something a, a little bit more than just the usual kind of nonsense going on with Russia and Trump is his is is his response to 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 investigations. Maybe I I, can't, I I still don't know if it's just he's that stupid and just that ham-fisted and 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 maladroit in responding to it, or if he's really trying to cover something up. But 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 I'm willing to stay with it enough to fi- to to find out. Well, I, I, number one, I'm willing to stay with it to find out, and number two, I think that the idea that Trump. Uh, is is complete you know completely stupid and an ignoramus I think is a little bit overblown as well I think that well while- you know it's funny you say that because I read the transcripts of, of did you see this of his conversation that was released recently the leaked yeah, transcript it's incoherent the Mexican inco- president I was, incoherent I was surprised I, I, he actually didn't sound like a complete moron oh oh you mean the transcript with the the phone yeah. calls right. I mean I I, yeah, I, yeah, I have yeah. been trained to expect him to be to sound even stupid much stupider than he did. Let me put it that way. Well, if you read the unedited transcript from um, his interview with, I want to say it was Lester Holt or whoever it was, he sounds like a, you know, like a drooling vegetable. But uh, if you read the uh, the transcript of those phone calls, I, I agree with you more to the point, And this is the point yeah. I wanted to make. 
I think that one of the dangers, and, and Hillary Clinton is guilty of this more than anybody, one of the dangers is that everybody keeps underestimating Trump. And everybody keeps underestimating the people around Trump and their political acumen. They ran one of the better campaigns that we've had in in recent memory. They were able to overcome, you know, pretty much the vast majority of the ruling class and the and the elite Wall Street, you know, point zero 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 one percent that were all backing Hillary. And the reason they were able to do it is not because they're brain dead morons. It's because they did have some political understanding and they had backing from key uh, members of the ruling establishment of the ruling class that harbor what amounts to essentially 19th century style pre-Civil War style, you know, uh, uh, policy. And ultimately, that's what Trump represents, a hard right reactionary politics that has been latent for the most part in the United States in the post-civil rights period. And that's part of what makes it so dangerous. And that's part of the reason why anybody advocating for allying with such people obviously has no political vision because it's clear as day where this is all going to uh, lead and where it will all end. Trump will come and Trump will go and the white nationalist far-right base will remain and it will grow and it will grow stronger and more entrenched just waiting for the real fascists to come along. And when that happens, woe be unto the leftists who said we should have collaborated. Oh, that's a very uh, chilling set of insights there. And it's interesting you say when the real fascist arrives, because I think that's right. Trump has at most been quasi-fascistic at times. I don't even doubt that his first wife may have been correct, that he uh, he kept and sort of looked at some of Hitler's 1939 speeches. But I, I doubt he ever has connected in any particular kind of way with real fascist ideology. I think he would be interested in that stuff merely at the level of how to manipulate people, but he wants to manipulate people in order to make himself richer, to make his family richer, and uh, and and all of that. I mean, he's 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 just he, he's a he's a purely sort of uh, uh, commercial, uh, mercantile type of individual. But but you're absolutely right. When someone who uh, really has the steely eyes of of a, of a Hitler comes along, and the and these people have emboldened have have been emboldened. And uh, even by some folks on the right, then, yeah, watch out. Well, and, and, and that's what I'm getting at, Paul, is because we can see where this is all going. I, at least I, I believe that I'm seeing where this is going. The far right that is backing Trump sees Trump as a victim. As a perpetual victim, as a victim of the of the liberal media, as a victim of of you know the uh, you know the Jews and the 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 immigrants and the you know the elites and the establishment and whatever, Trump is a victim. Trump is being destroyed. Trump is being destroyed because he's trying to make America great. What do you think that does? Let's flash back about seven or eight decades. And we see what happens when people feel they've been stabbed in the back, when an entire block of a country feels that it's been stabbed in the back by infiltrators, by outsiders, by inauthentic people of their nationality. I mean, for Hitler and the Nazis, it was the Jews and the communists who stabbed Germany in the back. And that's what needed to be righted. That was the wrong that needed to be righted. And I, and I really fear what's going to happen when the true believers in Trump's base— which which is, again, millions upon millions of people who are armed and who are angry and who are white, 
What's going to happen when they feel their guy's been destroyed, their voice has been shut out, and they can now see a new personality emerge, one who's smarter, one who's slicker, and one who plays on the need for revenge? Yeah, and one who unfortunately has a significant amount of support from the gendarme class. I mean, I presume you saw that picture of all the uh, white cops on Long Island clapping as Trump called oh, the yeah. abolition of Obamacare. And he's polled very well with the police and played the police very well during the uh, campaign, you know, with all the law and order rhetoric. And I think many of whom can be counted on uh, not to uh, repress armed. And we're not just talking about people with shotguns. We're talking about people with AR-15s and, and other uh, automatic weapons you know, uh, have a little rebellion as what? Is the K- 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 Kamala Harris <laughs> presidency you know, Paul, tries to, we, we've to already start seen up it. in 2020, uh, 2023 or whenever that, 2021, yeah. We've already seen it in my own hometown in, in Huntington Beach, California, okay, just a few months ago. There was there was a Trump rally, a Make America Great Again rally, and I'm, you know, like, I'm, I'm from Orange County, California, deeply reactionary, right-wing, hardcore Republican territory. The home of the John Birch Society or something? Well, it's the uh, Richard Nixon's home and Ronald Reagan's home. So, I mean, it's literally the seat of uh, California Republican reactionary right. politics. Uh, so right. this 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 Trump rally in Huntington Beach turns violent as the as the Trump people begin to attack uh, reporters from OC Weekly, one of the, you know, uh, I guess you could say a left liberal leaning uh, publication in Orange County and attack the, uh, you know, the, the the brown skinned reporter and attack some of the counter protesters and so forth. And this got very, very violent, very, very quickly. And the police did nothing about yeah. it, literally yeah. standing aside. And I've had in- interactions with Huntington Beach and Fountain Valley and Santa Ana and all of the surrounding cities and those police. And it's exactly what you said. These are the people who are going to sit back and watch and silently smile and clap as leftists are beaten and or killed by these type of fascists. Yeah, I've heard other stories like that. And I will tell you that right now there's something going on. There's this actually sort of left uh, political science department down at, believe it or not, down at San Diego State University. In San Diego, and there's at least one professor right now there, uh, just on the basis of something very mild he said on Facebook about John McCain uh, that was turned into a giant online incident and has led to a considerable number of flat out anti Semitic death threats and death promises and maiming threats and so forth, overlaid with a thick uh, uh, crust of anti uh, anti-Semitism, you know, and um, I think that's the kind of thing that uh, unfortunately is going to be going on for a while uh, in this country. Absolutely. And in, a Absolutely. lot of people that I talk to on the left seem to be, I don't know, sort of this, I guess this is sort of more the people in the black block, you know, sort of identity and so forth, uh, who just seem to be teaming for armed conflicts with people. And I try and tell them, I'm not sure you know 
what you're getting into. You might not, might want to wait. You need about 10 years of militia programming and weapons training <laughs> uh, on a large scale before you're going to before you're going to take these people on. Well, absolutely, and it's one of the reasons why. And I've taken so much flack for this. You can't even believe it. But it's one of the reasons why I always advocate uh, uh, armed self-defense, and I think armed self-defense is absolutely essential for the left, particularly as we enter into a very, very, very dangerous period where all of our enemies will be armed. But be that as it may, I do want to return back to uh, the issues that we were uh, raising in the beginning of our conversation, Paul, because, you know, this idea of collaborating with the right, there is a long history of this, and there are a lot of uh, very, very costly strategic mistakes that the left has made in the last century that I think are germane to this conversation. For instance... Who could forget? Anybody who studied the history of interwar Germany knows the folly of the communists, knows the folly of the communists really in, in throughout much of Europe where the communists had trained almost all, if not all, of their energy attacking the Social Democrats, attacking those who sold out to World War One, who sold out to nationalism, attacking them endlessly, while mostly ignoring the rise of, of, of groups like the uh, National Socialist Party and, you know, the Nazis and, and so forth. And this is one of the dangers I fear uh, on the left, is that a lot of people are very, very busy with their own sort of, you know, vision of what it is they need to be doing and are really underplaying the danger that we're facing. And I'll just tell you from my own experience, people attacking me personally saying that I'm going overboard talking about the far right, talking about the rise of fascism, talking about the danger that we're facing, that I'm playing it up too much, that I'm obsessing over this issue. And I would say as my counter-argument to that, I think the vast majority of the left is severely underplaying the danger that we're facing. Yeah, uh, you know, you, you mentioned armed resistance. Uh, I think a lot of m more people than I than I knew. I was sort of happy to see it. Uh, don't disagree with you on that because I remember weeks ago on Facebook I mentioned that uh, I had yet another death threat, and that's just standard for left writers right now. It happens all the time. It's nothing special. And <laughs> I said, "What should I do about this?" And I must have had fifty to sixty people that I know that are all on the left that seemed incredibly knowledgeable about exactly which weapons you know oh, yeah, to, okay. to purchase now. And I, you know, the, the other thing is there's a there's a very uh, unheralded or unknown uh, tradition called the Black Arms tradition, the Black Arms tradition of armed black self defense. Yep. Yep. And God knows in the black community right now you can really make a case for the necessity of that, even vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the police. It goes back a very long way, and a lot of people don't know that as Dr. King was marching around in the early 1960s, if you look at some of the films, you can see these guys with these big, long uh, overcoats. So they've got big, long overcoats because they've got long guns underneath there to, to try and do their best to uh, protect the great pacifist leader, Dr. King. And he knew about that, too, against armed attack. Yeah, 19, the early 1930s, the German Communist Party, I mean, that's one of the great epic fails yep, of left yep. politics in world history. And that's actually tr some of Trotsky's very best writings were in that period of time just ridiculing the German Communist Party for this notion that they didn't have to uh, join in, in United Front coalitions with the Social Democrats. You know, and this, this Communist Party slogan at the time was, after Hitler, us, yeah, right? Yeah. Hitler will come in, he'll fail, and then everything will be... Okay, well, okay, the communists got uh, the eastern part of Germany 
uh, uh, after World War II and had it from 1945 yeah. through, yeah. Uh, through the 1980s. But in between, <laughs> 6 million Jews were killed and 25 million Soviets died in God knows however. What was, that? What was the total death toll in World War II? 100 million or something like something that? Like so. That. Yeah, that didn't work out too hot, did it? Well, and well, that's exactly what I was about to say is that, you know, yes, the logic of that seems to fail exactly at the moment that every one of those communists who advocated that position were lined up in front of a wall and shot. So, you know, yeah. I mean, I think that we uh, should, but, you know, ignore that historical lesson at our peril. I never uh, will forget uh, a really chilling moment here in Iowa City, and I was told to go down to the local Methodist church here and that there was going to be this big gathering of uh, progressive and left and liberal forces in the city to talk about what we're going to do going going forward now that this kind of quasi-fascistic white nationalist administration had set up office in Washington, D.C. And it proceeded to be one little nice single issue liberal group after another just kind of making a pitch for their one little tiny sometimes foundation funded part of the uh, the uh, not so much activists as often direct service universe that they were upholding. I mean, there were some very good things. There was someone from the Rape Crisis Center and someone from the Recycling Center and then there was someone doing stuff on police violence and all that and I thought to myself Oh my God! This is just—we're getting—we're going to be cherry picked here. It was so, so, so divided up uh, into these various separate issues. It was—it was depressing to behold. I mean, that's just that's not going to get the job done. We have got to pull together on our on our issues. Yeah, um, I think it's the issues, but I but I also think, and this is just going back to a previous comment that I made. Um, that that it really also comes down to uh, solutions. In other words, for the left, if the left wants to be relevant, it has to be able to do things like ensure that people who are hungry have something to eat, okay. ensure that people who don't have access to childcare can get childcare. It's 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 things like that, you know, quote unquote bread and butter issues. Those are the things that matter, and those are the things that win politically. Now, Donald Trump spoke to some of those issues with some talking points, but it was obviously hollow, and it was obviously a smokescreen for much more reactionary policies. But people on the left should take note that, you know, things like, for instance, every major poll that Gallup has conducted in the last 35 years, including up till last year, show that the vast majority of the United States electorate and vast majority of citizens in general want and support progressive programs. They want Social Security and Medicare and all and and uh, Medicaid and food stamps and welfare and all of these other programs. They like and want these things. Now, what does that tell you? Does that mean that the answer to all problems is the New Deal? No, the answer is addressing those things that people need and want. And there are ways to do that. I can tell you for certain one way not to do that. Working with the far right who want to destroy all of that. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, the far right, the radical right, is militantly, uh, uh, religiously opposed to anything that smacks of collectivism and group rights, you know, and, 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 and civil rights, you know, beyond a kind of uh, white nationalist uh, identity kind of solidarity. It's the only kind they know. And um, that's not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, you know, people are showing up at these town halls when they've been yelling at the congressman. 
um, you know, uh, you know, sort of demanding action on precisely those things that you're that you're talking about. And unfortunately, a lot of this is organized by sort of neoliberal John Podesta like groups like uh, Indivisible and Move On and, and Town Hall. I mean, and th- th- you talk about people are doing the job that real leftists, you know, ought to be ought to be doing. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of these uh, one of the hardening things that you see is that a lot of these folks are showing up at these protests to 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 protect people from being kicked off of uh, Medicaid and 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 all of that is a lot of them are demanding single payer health insurance, you know, which has had majority support in this country for decades. As long as long as I've been looking at polls, they've had it. Most Americans support uh, um, uh, collective bargaining rights, and they so, and and would prefer to be in a union on their job rather than not be in the union. You could just go down that list. Or you could denounce that people. Some ultra leftists, I suppose, could denounce that list as as reformist. Um, but but there's no absolute dichotomy between reform and revolution. Back when we had a left in this country, and what all leftists know, is that you advance reform demands, particularly ones that um, that you know probably can't be fully answered within the system. P- part of it is when 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 those demands are answered, they help create space for people to 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 formulate. Uh, demands that are yet more radical, right? I mean, if we could reduce working hours, if we had stronger unions, if we could share jobs out more, and we could create more leisure time so people could even have have time to think critically about the system that they're working under, right? Uh, but there's a lot of things that are just very basically reformist right now that I don't think they're going to get anymore under capitalism, right? And so that and that's when d- 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 asking for reforms ends up sort of becoming revolutionary. I think that we're already sort of at that point, though we don't know it yet. And I think this is the looming issue that's going to take over all the issues. Most people do want a sustainable environment. Most people do want to live in harmony uh, 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 with, 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 with ecology. Most people want livable ecology. Uh, I don't think they can have that anymore under capitalism. I, I think that's just an existential fact. I don't think capitalism is capable of granting that. I don't think right now capitalism right now actually is 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 structurally predisposed or even capable right now of even meeting a lot of basic bread and butter needs. I actually think right now it's waiting for a bigger crisis, for a worse recession. I agree with Michael Roberts, the, the British Marxist right now, uh, economist in London, who, 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 who points out that actually austerity is quite rational from the logic of capital right now. They are trying to bid wages and the social safety net down yet further. They're still trying to push people down to a point where the rate of profit becomes high enough for another boom to occur. But we can't afford another boom environmentally or ecologically. We're sort of past that point. Yeah, I totally agree. And I would just add, uh, you know, one of the things that really I think has to be considered in all of this is that reform and revolution, you know, not to not to get too Luxembourgian about it, but, uh, you know, reform and revolution are not, as as you said, I mean, there's not a clear uh, delineation and a clear dichotomy. You know, I always think about um, when I was in when I was in undergrad, my uh, my major was art history. And, uh, you know, it was something that I was always interested in and really enjoyed studying. And one of the things that I I learned about was the origin of the term avant-garde. And why we use avant-garde. Avant-garde actually comes from the Napoleonic era, and it actually comes from military tactics. And it's the notion that you simultaneously advance and defend. 
That's what avant-garde means. Advance and defend. Advance and defend. You move forward and you defend the ground that you have just now taken. And in defending it, you move further forward. And you're always moving forward. That was the concept of Napoleon, you know, the, the Grand Armée of Napoleon. And that became, you know, a term that we use in, in the art world to, you know, describe experimental things that push the boundaries of our understanding of any particular medium or what have you. Now, the reason I bring that up is because... And, I and, think- and you obtain legitimate legitimacy from those partial victories yes and i think you 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 win some rank rank and file loyalty exactly and and look i don't think we should underestimate the value of being able to win a quote-unquote reform that actually impacts in a positive way the material existence of millions of people when you do that you now open the door to radicalize them you now open the door to work with them you now open the door to make them part of a larger movement this is how movement building works it doesn't work with some kind of manufactured building of alliances it works with dedicated and sustained political action that wins so that's what the really needs to be focusing on how do we win how do we advance and defend defend and advance and constantly move forward it's the very notion of what it means to be progressive progress moving forward i mean this shit is fucking fundamental i think that requires uh some institutional continuity and some real institution building beneath and beyond i'm not sure we've had the kind of institutional capacity for that since the McCarthy era. And I mean, there were a lot of wonderful things that happened in the 1960s. But I mean, the last real strategic organized kind of uh, uh, left that when I really think about it, in many ways was the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the way they brilliantly helped dismantled segregation in the Deep South and everything was calculated and they knew what they were doing. There's a lot of money and, and stuff coming from the top down to the Part of, we've been very ephemeral ever since, rushing from one big demo and one big cause to another. I mean, if you want to see an epitome of it, it was Occupy. Though I would say that we don't know what Occupy might have become uh, if it hadn't been violently repressed. In, well, in, I think uh, that yeah. there's a lot to be said for what you're saying, but I would also add that the uh, Black Panther Party for Self-Defense is a very good model. And uh, the very concept of the survival programs is really what, it, what I'm talking about here. I mean, what we need are survival programs for tens of millions of people. We need to take some of the elements of that kind of a model and expand on them. And my point is... Well, survival is a key word because I think what we're looking at increasingly is something that needs to... We have to unite the demand for for basic bread and butter butter, uh, 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 job possibilities with saving the environment at the yes. same time. I mean, more and more, our central demand is going to become these, check, you know, really big public works, green, uh, green New Deal, and green jobs programs to sa- to save humanity, to even keep a, a future alive. Well, I mean, I agree with that, but I would I would put a slightly different spin on it and say that it's it's not about stopping any of this because I don't believe it can be stopped. I think instead it's about reorienting how we think about how we build communities, about how we interact with each other, about what kind of an economic system we can actually implement and 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 you know use for our everyday existence. I think the most fundamental core issues of our social existence are going to be called into question by things like climate change and ocean acidification and you know 
any number, you know, the polar caps melting and all these other things that are, uh, you know, I think rather inevitable, sustainable existence, the building of resilient Um, communities. That's what we're really looking at here. And that requires, I hate the phrase because it's so inane, but a paradigm shift in how the left operates and how the left organizes. Well, I have seen the left uh, get caught up in uh, um, battles again and again that that their enemy is operating on on a scale that they simply can't match. I mean, uh, we we had this remarkable. Everyone focuses on North Dakota, but there was a very interesting campaign. <laughs> it was it was led to no small extent by Catholic worker people, some of whom are quite heroic militants and recently appeared on. Uh, democracy now, and some of them are very probably going to go to jail for some sabotage acts that I actually think were very noble that they undertook, monkey wrenching activity. But I would go to these various things and participate in some of these uh, kind of direct actions against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And then when it was all over and it was done and it was clear it was going to be built and everybody went home, uh, I looked up the funding for this thing and my mind was just blown by the scale and the scope of the international financial institutions in Japan, in Switzerland, in France, in Canada, in England, that had poured hundreds of millions of dollars into this pipeline. And I just realized, my God, the disparity between our resources and their their resources. And it sort of made me sort of think more about uh, local organizing and transition towns and community protection laws that you would pass at the local level that would say you never can build something like that in here in the first place, you know, but, um, but the, I, the, the inequality of that struggle is just phenomenal. I think, Paul, though, that we're approaching a, a I don't want to use the word tipping point because that's really not the right word. I think we're approaching a, a transitional moment here, and that is that uh, a crisis that is looming, be it an economic crisis on a scale far larger than 2008, be right. it a climate crisis or even potentially a global, well, a global conflict, a world yeah. war scenario, any number of potential things that are going to change the entire calculus of our politics. And I think that, you know, while the left may be disorganized and the forces that we are opposing are so vastly superior to ours, I think there will come a moment where that's not going to matter so much. And what is going to matter is who's the most disciplined, who's the most organized, and who's the most committed. And that is really, I think, the task before us now. And it's the, and it's what I think about when I look at my own son and I think, well, where is he going to be when he's 35? And where am I going to be? And where's our society going to be? Well, I think those of us on the left sometimes have to hold our nose a little bit and go into groups and organizations that are not as left as our own consciousness is. People have been bugging me to go look at the DSA chapter right here. I mean, you know, at first, my first response is to shrug and I DSA. I mean, they have a, and this goes back to Michael Harrington. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be 60 years old next year. And there's all these issues with uh, Vietnam and all, you know, and war funding and all of that. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know if, if leftists should go become part of these indivisible groups. Maybe they should. And just try and talk to people and move them further left, particularly around these existential issues that really are moving us into a situation. Uh, the, one you, the one you left out is a possible pandemic, you know, related to germs being hatched out of the melting permafrost, yeah. right? 
But but there really are these incredible existential issues that kind of pose that revolutionary question, that revolutionary moment of we've got nothing left to lose, right? That that's that's that, that's that's always been kind of a myth, right? You tell lots of people they've got nothing left to lose, right? A lot of people have got uh, mortgages and then college student loans and kids in school and all. They they feel like they've got a lot left to lose. But I'll never forget this one uh, anti-pipeline activist in Des Moines saying, we've got nothing yelling out uh, through the glass walls at these uh, 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 environmental uh, uh, authorities there, that, that we've got nothing, we, we, we don't have anything left to lose except a livable planet anymore. We're really sort of reaching that point, and I think you may see things shaping up differently. You know, Paul, uh, there, there, with that. That, 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 it just changes the calculus. We're in, we're in existential times. There's no doubt about it. Uh, not to make an, uh, sort of esoteric reference here, but, uh, the, the great, uh, contemporary science fiction writer, Kim Stanley Robinson, who, uh, famously, uh, wrote the Mars, the, the, the red Mars and the Mars trilogy, uh, one of the great things about that, and this is relevant to what you were just saying, Paul, is that um, it goes from essentially, uh, you know, you know, 2020s, 2030s, well into the future, really like a couple of hundred years into the future. And what happens when you get towards the end of this trilogy is that you're now following a historian who's writing the history of those 300, 400 years that have passed. And you know what they refer to when they talk about our time that we live in, in, in you know, mm. in, in the world of this book? They refer to this entire period as quote, the, the quote unquote, the dithering period the dithering. and yeah. and they call the dithering that that you know century or two centuries or whatever where people on planet earth were constantly fighting over you know very earth-centric issues political issues and so forth totally ignoring the fact that a crisis was going to essentially transform the entire planet and make it nearly unlivable yeah. And it would well, force, uh, you know, what they called an acceleration of exploration into space. Now, obviously, you know, there's a sci-fi element to all of this, but there's something very real about living through this moment. And I feel kind of in my bones this idea that we're really dithering here. Well, you know, is it Elon Musk? I mean, that's not complete fantasy. He's actually uh, sitting around trying to devise escape pods uh, to Mars I, right I, now. I don't, as, I don't as we disagree speak. with. I don't disagree with the strategy, yeah. frankly. If I had billions, actually, I, I think I think I think optimistically, we're probably in a um, a generation long period right now where there's a window, you know. And and I mean, one of the really optimistic um, for survival, and one of the really optimistic things that's that, that's worth mentioning is that uh, the water, wind, and solar technologies are up and running and viable and, and cost-effective. I mean, the, the barriers to a transition off of fossil fuels now are primarily political, not technological. There's a feasibility there. Uh, I'm not an earth scientist. I've never, you know, obviously, I don't claim to be any such thing. But I've heard from some of them sort of mixed signals. One is that they're muzzling themselves to some extent on how dire it is because this sort of puts their employment at risk and their uh, their political situation at risk to 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 be fully honest about it, but on the other hand, they'll say that there there are technologies in place. We could have huge reforestation programs. Some things are already locked in. I mean, Miami's gone by 2100. Forget about it. So is Bangladesh. Um, 
And 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 if we don't act in that period, if we dither, then uh, God help us. Yeah. Uh, Follow up question: Will anybody miss Miami? <laughs> no, I said. I suppose not. But sorry, I, sorry I, my Florida friends. Yeah, that I, I was there. flew in there three Aprils ago, and I hadn't been to South Florida before, and I hadn't realized how much of it was already underwater, and my first thought was, uh, they're done. Yeah, exactly. So given all of that, given all of these enormous questions that you and I were just discussing, enormous existential crises – Bringing it back to where we started this conversation, doesn't it make this idea of uniting with the right seem so fucking stupid? Well, you know, I mean, I, on, on a personal level, uh, people have friends, they have relatives. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm not one that uh, at family gatherings uh, advocates people picking up steak knives and screaming at each other about politics. Um, you know, I, I, if, if like Arlie Hochschild... The Berkeley sociologists can go down and make friends with white Southerner tea partiers and convert some of them over to, I don't know, the liberal side or the left side. Well, you know, good for her. I wouldn't I wouldn't spend five years. I wouldn't spend five years doing that. Um, You know, if folks can talk uh, right wingers down into kind of having an American history X moment, um, you know, uh, which happens sometimes, you know, and people see things from another perspective. I'm all the more power to them. Well, do that. Well, those but politically, are, politically, no, it, there's there's not much well, point. Well, in, and in those things are good. Those things are fine on a micro level, on an individual level. My my father is a deep right wing reactionary. I could still talk to him and we could still sure. laugh about all kinds of different things. Right. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is a political strategy for organizing and building a movement and the idea that the right can play a role in building such a movement in my opinion is utter horseshit well but i mean on top of which you're what are we talking about a fifth of the electorate at most at most so you know what's the necessity i mean we're not that desperate you know if progressives leftists were actually doing their job that cohort um would be swamped uh, I mean, bear in mind, though, as you pointed out, much of it is armed. I mean, it's a dangerous cohort. There's going to be issues, and people are going to have to approach that uh, with a proper sense of danger and lack of sentimentality. But it's not anything remotely close to the majority uh, of the country. Absolutely. Well, I think that will be the tagline for this episode. Paul Street, we're not that desperate. Episode 93 of Counterpunch Radio. Um, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. Listeners, thank you as always for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. So much more to say. Maybe have to edit out a few things. We'll see. But uh, always appreciate it. Speak to you all again next week. (laughs) 